Hey, hey, everyone. This is Darlene, and this is an all new All That Is Empath podcast. And I am thrilled to have a wonderful human being with us here today. It's Adriana Smith, and she is a complex trauma recovery expert who works with intuitives interested in healing intergenerational trauma. And she's worked for over a decade as a workshop facilitator, personal growth consultant, and educator, both in the US and abroad. Adriana uses a blend of proven techniques similar to the work of Viktor Frankl. Her method is deeply informed by her own experience as a survivor of family trauma from her upbringing in Eastern Europe during an oppressive political regime. Her clients benefit from quantum levels of personal transformation that break old cycles as well as ongoing trauma. Thank you so much for being with us, Adriana. Thank you, Darlene. It's lovely to be here. Uh, and an honor to have this conversation. Wonderful. I am so excited to jump into this because your work is so amazing. Uh, tell me, actually, tell, tell us a little bit about what launched you into doing this type of work. Okay. Well, um, thank you for asking. The, the story is quite long, so I'm going to look for ways to just highlight aspects of it. But um, There is a dance between the empath journey and the survivor journey for someone who's been exposed to complex trauma. And um, my more recent focus has been on how to unpack even beyond the current generation worth of trauma because as it plays itself out it turns out there's so many other older dynamics coming into play but my work as a facilitator and a recovery expert is to help folks unpack what they have to contend with as intuitives and who have been exposed to harm emotionally mentally and often even physically So um, I have been using my own life experience as well as um, techniques that I've picked up along the way. Um, But I was born overseas in Eastern Europe at a time where there was violence outside the home and inside the home. So I kind of couldn't get away from the assignment. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, if I wanted to, so um, I had to, uh, over the years, figure out how to integrate it. So um, I've had many conversations, Darlene, with other folks, other survivors of like political trauma and other adverse experiences in their past. And I found that a lot of folks once they get to safety, they don't look back. They prefer not to even you know, talk about it. They try to put it behind them, start over. And I couldn't do that. Um, so I've not been able to just turn that off um, unlike other people. So for me, the challenge has been which I knew as as a young person that I'd wind up having to do this um, because I was processing so much for my loved ones around me that um, the unpacking and the healing work 
in retrospect and um, walking myself through those difficult processes because my kids were born in the States and they've never been exposed to that. So I felt a responsibility to not just give them a clean slate um, of safety, but also make sure that they don't inherit the baggage that comes with seeing violence and um, both outside the home and inside the home. So, yeah, in my story, um, I had a lot of domestic violence occurring. My father, unfortunately, even though he was a leader in the community, um, really struggled um, for balance. And uh, he couldn't quiet his demons. And one of the ways that he coped was um, through exerting control and violence in the home. And um, that was the first 10 years for me. Um, there, I am the oldest of four. Um, my mom and he were very young when they got married. So in a lot of ways, um, you know, they grew up with us. So, um, and a lot of what was going on in the home was happening sort of hush-hush, hidden uh, behind closed doors. So like a lot of survivors of domestic violence, you know, uh, the way we showed up in the community and what happened at home were two very separate realities. And I remember to this day, I have memories. They're not intrusive anymore, but I can, if I focus, remember the sound of my mother's body slamming against the wall um, as a small child. And um, so I can sit with someone who has experienced these kinds of things and, um, and truly understand and relate with um, what they're going through and how they're trying to manage um, their emotions with something like that, even if it's very old and it, they've been carrying them around for years. And um, I do remember even as young as age four, thinking this can't be right. Something's very wrong here. And if I had my way, you know, this was my conversations with God. Um, I wanted to make sure that this stopped with me. So I had this very strong sense of this stops with me. I had no idea how that was going to happen. And if you ask me, even at age 10, I had no concept of leaving that life in that country and, and what it might be like living anywhere else. Um, no concept of anything like that. I believe that everyone lived just like we did. Um, but, you know, for good reasons and for bad reasons, you know, things um, escalated in my homeland of Romania and reached a point where we could no longer stay. And I, what I call a miracle looking back now, we 
were put in a situation where we had to flee the country and citizenship was removed. Um, we wound up, uh, my parents sold the house that we lived in and the proceeds from that uh, went to securing tickets out the country and, you know, an exit of, of the country. And then we waited in a refugee camp for a little while before receiving uh, sponsorship from the United States. And um, in 1981, we arrived in New York. And um, that was the beginning of a whole other life. Um, unfortunately, you know, looking back, you would think that that would be a clean slate, an opportunity to start over and to reinvent ourselves. But uh, for my dad, you know, the things that he had endured and, and gone through, he had, um, he did not have the tools to, to find his way. And um, so his alcoholism, once we reached the States really became very pronounced and severe and um, caused a lot of instability during my teen years and for the rest of the family, of course. Um, and I went on a mission because in the American school system, we had some tools and some services. And so I went, every, every chance I had, I would go and sit with the social worker um, at school, I began um, ravenously reading self-help books at age 12. As soon as I had command of the English language, I realized, oh, there are names for these things. And, you know, people understand, there are people out there who understand what is happening behind closed doors. And even though I was not able to recruit my family into that process. Um, it was tremendous for me. I, I really, it, it set me on a journey that there was no stopping that momentum. So, um, you know, without going into the alcoholism aspect of it and, and all of that, because that's its own healing journey, I, um, I want to emphasize here that there is a process whereby intuitives and empaths um, get invited to step into their power. And for me, my first invitation was when I was very young in the first couple of years, where I became aware that I wanted the assignment of ending the cycle. And as I gained more awareness and more tools, um, there was an ownership process that just increased over time. And I know a lot of empaths receive these kinds of invitations, even though they may come oftentimes triggered by unfortunate events in our lives. You know, and I wondered, you know, you probably have had occurrences and things that are like guiding from behind where we have the opportunity to say, 
do I try to shove this further down, push it out the way more, or am I going to take the challenge and step up into this power? Because there's something that needs attention here. And um, it's life sometimes, life circumstances blare it very loudly. So my father is what we would call um, covert narcissist and um, really struggled with a lot of things. And I, I feel a tremendous amount of love and compassion for his journey. Um, but I've really had to learn ways to create safety in my life and and define what those needs were and how to provide for them and so um in in the first few years of life like a lot of empaths you know we have difficulty understanding where we and, and another person begins because there's so much overlap of emotions. And in the beginning, regulating those emotions are so difficult, um, especially if there's active trauma going on and there's active abuse going on. And for the empath and the intuitive person, um, what I experienced as well was this um, you know, the overlap was so profound. It was an entanglement. And I was doing the processing for my parents of very complex and difficult emotions of their own. So it wasn't until my late teen years that I was able to pull away from that process. And that's part of the ownership. That's part of the thresholds we need to cross where we can say, well, you end there, your range of emotions and your experiences end there, and I begin here. And my experiences are just as valid as yours. And I'm going to clear a path for my experiences. And not only that, but as we go into young adulthood, a lot of us have to say, I'm going to prioritize my experience because I have control over that. It's amazing that you did that so young. I mean, it took me, I was probably in my 40s by the time I was able to. Oh, do honey, I, I had such a, at 40, I had such another wake up call of my own, you know, because Darlene, as life would have it. You know, I, I did a lot of this healing work in my 20s, of course, uh, very, I really had a lot of self-awareness, but I wasn't actually safe. So I became involved with a man who um, became the father of my kids. Um, we got married and started a family of my own when I was um, about 30. And, um, but he, what well, he actually was a covert narcissist. Repeating. And as, a, as opposed to my dad's overt. Yeah. And I, I didn't recognize it because wow. it, it was, you know, disguised. And that's the pattern 
And, you know, I thought I was so aware and I thought I had such a handle on things. And look, I mean, with all of the tools and all of the homework I did and all of my own work that I did on myself, I didn't foresee that I was being singled out. You know, my missing pieces, he saw those and um, saw an opportunity to move into that space. And um, it became a very, that was 15 years, maybe 20 years of my life. Um, you know, we were married for almost 15 years. And, um, you know, it, it sort of set you for a spin. And at age 40, I was experiencing a kind of a spiritual awakening. Um, I, I remained on a spiritual path. But by age 40, I, I could no longer compromise. So we were still married. I, I was still, you know, my kids were still growing when this was happening. But something inside me woke up to a level that I couldn't um, deny anymore. And I couldn't compromise. And I wasn't willing to change course anymore. So what I didn't understand is that my conventional family life was crumbling and that the marriage wouldn't um, wouldn't survive that. Um, maybe five years before it ended, I remember I had a, a vision and it wasn't in a sleep. It was while we were just going about the day we were moving through the house having conversations and all of a sudden I had this elaborate image of me tucking the girls in at a, a new place and I knew the exact location of the exact town um, which I had lived in at one time and I was tucking them in for the night and then I was walking my then husband out the door to his car and waving goodbye while he was driving away. And I was going inside alone with them. And that was so out of context, you know, because I was deeply entrenched in that life and there was no precedence for any visions like that. But, um, I, I sat with that and only at the very end did I understand that that was a premonition of, um, you know, life apart and, you know, that the marriage was, was dissolving and that we were meant to be apart. They, you know, sometimes when we try to put the pieces together, they just don't fit. And I really, you know, having had the background I had, wanted to create belonging and to create family and to create connection. And I had an immense um, experience with, with his family and in creating some of that um, deep level of connection and 
we had positive experiences among the family, but I could not do the journey for him at home. And it became uh, more and more unstable until it began replicating the domestic violence of the first part of my life. So that was a wake up call. <laughs> Big one. Yeah. Yeah. Basically that pattern of yeah. violence. And thank God you finally freed yourself from that. Yes. Tell me a little bit about, because you mentioned this creating your safe zone, how to make your home a haven, which sounds yes. like a perfect experience for, uh, but yes. tell me a little bit about this. Okay. So here's the thing. Okay. We have, I consider the home like a body. Okay. And um, we have, you know, when we come from um, domestic violence situation, this is a different kind of trauma on the body and in our homes. And providing safety is a whole um, journey all its own for that. And the reason I bring this forward in a conversation with empaths is because the coping skills that we need for recovering from chronic abuse, which is what domestic violence often is, okay? And we're not talking about a one-time incident, okay? So the skills we need to recover from a one-time incident are very different to the skills that we need to recover from long-time occurrences. The trust alone, the trust factor is, I mean, that in itself is a massive undertaking. So for the empath, um, you know, with each, with each, pillar that we put in place to fortify our lives, we have the opportunity to regain um, more strength, a new level of strength. So my idea was that, um, that in offering ourselves an environment of safety that we get to unpack. Right. So um, what I've seen over the years um, now, in the last um, seven years or so, I um, had the opportunity to live overseas with um, a wonderful man that I wound up marrying um, recently. And we worked together with folks who um, were recovering from addiction and many of them from trauma. And... Um, I found that a lot of them just didn't have the safety to actually tackle the recovery work of the trauma um, because they had active, what I call active timeline of uh, either abuse, addiction, um, they have violence and other kinds of um, drama and difficulties that are still active. So they, so they have to heal that emotional abuse before attacking the addiction Is well it's kind of it's kind of like imagine they don't even have physical safety 
So we learned this because we were working with um, addiction um, with folks in the recovery process of addiction. So there we would have our clients, they had to go through detox first. And that was sometimes 21 days, wow. right? So they had to step out of their environment that was active, practicing addiction, and go into um, a safe zone in order to just get clean long enough to begin the work. Wow. Now, 21 days is only enough time to, to start. It's not really enough time to recover. Right. Um, we, we wound up with, with a number like that because of conventions like insurance that is, you know, the medical field and comes with its own caveats and unfortunately doesn't facilitate real recovery. It is just gives folks enough time to scrub clean. Yeah. And um, just reach some level ground for a time to, to get the process started. So what my husband and I um we worked for five years with folks after they got out of the detox phase. And that's when we began unpacking and doing the, the difficult work. And then we, we went through a process of fortifying the rest of their lives. We would go through the practical things needed to, um, you know, the lifestyle changes, the changes in the house, the, you know, there are physical things that need to change in a house when we're in the process of recovery. What's so in the, some of those things, say again, what's an example of some of those things? Like okay. what do you need to change? So we're, we need to create, we need like in, in an addiction recovery process, we need to remove the, the um, triggers. We need to remove the, the, the product, the items that create triggers and replace it with a toolbox for what to do when we feel um, the need to reach for something to compensate with. So, um, you know, um, the things for, for, a, for someone recovering from chronic abuse in order to create the very first step okay, is claiming and declaring the home a safe zone. Okay. Okay. So I have a process when I do my private consults where, um, and, and this works real well when we do it in person, where we get to walk about the house. Instead of doing the feng shui process, we go through every room in the house and we set an intention for safety and we we claim um a new journey of safety in those spaces for some folks who are coming out of um a violent past or an abusive environment this needs to happen in an entirely new home but if we don't we don't set an intention from the get-go it's not going to happen. It's not going to come about in a haphazard way. 
we, we can't be casual about something like this. So we need to be deliberate and intentional. So the very first step, and I have a couple of other um, steps after that, but we, we need to together and, you know, it really helps it, to have a witness, someone who holds you accountable in, in that process. So in, in part of that, we, we sort of invite blessings and we invite good experiences into our lives, starting with we, we demarcate that moment in time. From this step forward, even though up until now, and, and we acknowledge the past, even though until now, this, this has been our experiences going forward, this is what we take ownership of. These are the experiences we invite. We invite wholesome relationships. We invite respect to come and dwell with us. We invite dignity. We invite unconditional love. We invite safety. Nice. Um, and we go down the line. So it begins at our front door. Nice. That ritual begins at our front door. And in doing so, we make a promise and a vow to ourselves to not allow unsafe individuals to cross that threshold. Nice. Does this affect what you're doing with setting the intentions? Does, is, this, is this mainly for the individual on a, a, a psychological or subconscious basis? Or is it actually changing the energy in the room like are you actually cleansing the the room the energy so well my personal practice I have done this personally although not everyone will um adapt to will wind up using this particular technique but for me um wherever I have moved wherever I have gone i i wound up um either um lighting incense or sage or something in a dwelling before i moved in before moving day so i have always done that for myself but you can come up with your own version of that everyone um might you know have different ways of of doing that um but the the process i'm referring to occurs after that so you can do it even if you've been living there a while and, um, you know, you, you want a, a fresh start. You want to turn over a new leaf. It, it's possible to do it that way. However, it is very important that, you know, if you are in a relationship with someone who is abusive, that... Um, this is not going to work. This safety is not going to work um, unless they're in a space of their own. So um, that's a whole other process, um, which we can talk about in another conversation, how to cope yeah. and how to recover if you are still in an active timeline. There's different steps involved in that. And I don't want to invalidate those folks because I have worked um, with a lot of women who, it, you know, I can't tell someone if they have children with 
an abusive person to just up and leave. You know, that whole process is very different. It's going to look very different. But this is for someone who has stepped out, who has ended an abusive timeline, an abusive relationship, and they are ready to start anew. And so the very first thing that we do is making a declaration and then setting that intention. And if we don't own that intention and we don't make um, a promise to ourselves, um, you know, everything that happens, you know, the winds of change are going to blow and we get um, pulled back into drama and we fall back into depressive states and the cycles of triggers, yeah. you know, wind up pulling us um, in downward spirals. So we, this is an opportunity to begin anew and to enter a, into a new relationship with ourselves where we honor the pain that we have survived. Amazing. We we honor the wound. Okay. So I want to make a, an important distinction in this conversation because a lot of the the folks I speak with and I attend my workshops and a lot of the folks that write to me ask me about you know the role of therapy and I always it, this works better if you already have some form of um, therapeutic journey that you're already on okay. so I would never discourage therapy um, but I, what I wound up doing is working with um, folks that fall in the gaps the, a lot of my clients are folks who are not good fits for therapy or they will have avoided therapy or they just don't see themselves benefiting. Um, and I'll, I'll explain to you why. A lot of the clinical world is missing um, information on um, adequate, or I should say, adequate trauma information, mm. and especially with respect to long-term trauma. So, for let's say, for someone who's involved with a narcissist, and they have spent years trying to cope with a relationship like that, um, I even had this experience where. There was a final ditch, last ditch effort to go into therapy as a couple and work. And it wound up blowing up in my face mm. and it triggered a more violent reaction afterwards. And so we had maybe three sessions and it just turned into a nightmare mm. where everything that was shared during the sessions wound up becoming fuel for greater fires once we got home and this is often the case for a lot of my clients and why they don't qualify for traditional therapy not only that but the therapist herself wound up um taking his side 
um, because of the way that he presented. And so a narcissist is often very charming if they're covert and they have ways of convincing folks, strangers that, you know, they're really, um, you know, the, the person who has a handle on reality and right. you are the unstable person and so on and so forth. So this is why this kind of um, program works best for these kinds of clients is because um, this is beyond book knowledge, what I'm bringing. Yeah. Um, and talking through for, for these clients, talk therapy is often just re-triggering. So what I try to do with this program is create new reference points because someone who's coming out of domestic trauma and complex trauma is referencing, they're living their lives referenced by the flashbacks as, as to inform their actions and their behavior. So when we do things like we uh, walk through the house and we create new intention, what we're doing is we're creating positive references. We're introducing positive history, nice. healthy history, wholesome history, healthy history in our relationships with ourselves. So this would be the first step we would do. And um, we walk through several weeks of crossing the threshold of our own homes in an intentional way until it becomes natural to say, this, is, this space is sacred. Nice. And I belong here. And I deserve to be safe. My clients, when they connect with me, don't believe that they deserve safety. They've never consciously thought about it because for many of them, that's all they've ever known is panic, anxiety, unsafety, looking over their shoulder. So, um, you know, obviously, you know, the first step would be the door. The next step that I, I want to invite our, our listeners and um, um, recovering uh, prospects to is to look at their walls, to clear their walls, and to begin putting words um, that express this intention in some way or another. So what this could look like is you create your, your version of your intention for safety and you write it out and then you print it in some form or another. I don't care if it's on a post-it note that <laughs> it's scribbled and you frame that post-it note, but frame it and nail it to the wall. Nice. So that as you move about, the walls speak over you. Amazing. The walls themselves are speaking a new reality for you. Nice. 
So, so the walls themselves, instead of telling the story of abuse and pain, are going to speak about healing and safety. Brilliant. And, and I invite, you know, this is, it, it takes time. This is not something that I could like in a quick, you know, spell it out what, what that would look like. It's a whole process for what these affirming words would look like. They're life-giving words. Right. For someone who is depressed and in a low place, and that's all the the environment that they've ever known, um, declarations like that can be life saving. Absolutely, they recenter us and think about it. Um, this is not just energy work, Darlene. It begins with energy work, but we take it to a whole other level when we invite new experiences because what we're saying is i'm gonna embody a life of alignment i'm going to embody a life of strength i'm embodying courage and it begins in my house under this roof amazing it, it's it sounds like affirmations on steroids <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like that it's kind of like that so, um, you know, and I'll share with you how there are some formal trainings that I use to get to this point, but let me just take you through the next couple of steps. I know the hour is moving on and there's a lot of, um, you know, I can, I can speak for hours on this information, but th these are some of the fun things that we can put in place. So when I left my abusive situation for a long time, I had no kitchen table. Hmm. So I, I re, re, I pieced together many aspects of my life, but I was missing a kitchen table of my own. And so one of, I, I decided to include the kitchen table or the dining room table as part of this process. So another way to create safety would be to stand over your table and to declare that at my table, I will only welcome relationships that are life affirming. Mm -hmm. And I will disinclude folks, including family members who are not life affirming and who are not safety affirming. I will begin to disinvite and disinclude those relationships. And I will be intentional and deliberate about who I invite to this table because my gathering, my, the table, I will gather, this is a sacred space that I gather relationships at. And the food that I serve is the love that I share. And I choose in a deliberate and specific way to nurture the relationships that I invite and that I gather to this table. That is such a powerful exercise. Yeah. To, to, to beyond bringing dignity into our lives, we, we acknowledge the sacredness of our agency, our, our right to invite only those relationships that uplift and reinforce us. Perfect. 
And so the next area that we go to is our bed where we sleep because powerful work happens in our sleep and sleep for me when I first left, um, it took, I slept for two years. Oh my. I mean, not straight. I mean, I would sleep uh, freakishly long hours Yeah. because my sleep was so interrupted and anyone who's been in a domestic violence situation knows what it's like. Yeah. You're not allowed to sleep. And, and I'm still to this day a light sleeper, but we go to the bed and we do a similar process. No one will enter or sleep next to me who is unsafe. This is a sacred space where I reconnect with my sacred self on the unconscious and deepest level. This is the place where I recover. This is the place where healing takes place. This is the place where I realign with my deepest self. Okay. I will, I refuse to sleep with my demons and my fears. Mm. This is the place where I share love and so on and so forth. So those are just some of the reclamations that we, nice. we make around the bed. And, uh, you know, this is not a last one, but another one that is really key in the process is our closets. You know, um, there is a reason why we use the phrase, you know, there's skeletons in our closet. Ah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So I'm going through it right now. I am decluttering my closet physically. Yeah. And in our willingness to declutter every object that we touch and that we pull out of our closets and our storage corners where we've stashed away the things that carry negative memories, we pull mm -hmm. them out and we unpack the negative and we leave behind only the things that bring us, you know, good feeling yeah. and, and that, that, that comfort us. So, it's not just about creating a toolbox. It's about creating an entire environment that supports our healing, that supports our stability. And the home must feel like, you know, it feeds us. It must feel like our growth happens here. Yeah. That we are excited to arrive home because we get revitalized here yes that is so powerful. Uh, these are just some examples but how can we you know i'm working with a number of women right now who have left abusive situations and they are in what what is called a transient stepping stone of safety like they are staying with other folks or in temporary shelter mm. And, and, and they want, the first thing they want to do is unpack. And I tell them, no, it's not time. It's not time. You're not safe where you are to do this work. So right now, all you, you, you need to focus on is just getting, securing that next level, getting that empty space where you can fill it with a new life. Right. 
and, and we get to do this process. But when we're in an interim phase is not the time to unpack because if you start unpacking the emotional stuff, somehow on, a, on an energetic level and on an instinctual level, other unstable people in our environment or near us, they know that we're busy unpacking and they interfere in, in different ways and they may create even greater levels and re-traumatize greater levels of pain can occur at that point and this is so it's such a critical point because a lot of um our wonderful intuitive survivors give up they the, if at this point they experience greater trauma they throw in the towel a lot of them go back to unhealthy situations and um relapse into unsafety and they accept that it, or they're just fated des destined they don't deserve any better mm -hmm. and that's what i try to prevent so um everything in in my work is about creating intentional steps and walking folks through intentional relationships beginning with the relationship with ourselves our home and then radiating outward to uh, intentional family intentional partnerships and so on and so forth that is the beginning of a powerful new journey i love that you're <laughs> such amazing work, Adriana. Um, to end up here, let us know where we can find you online. If somebody wants to work with you, uh, get more information, how would they contact you? Yes. So I, I lovingly invite folks to connect with me. Um, and I have been writing actively on Facebook and uh the page you can find me at on Facebook is um, Adriana Smith. So you'll be looking for my name um, beyond the trauma wound. Okay. So that is the page. But more importantly, right now, I am cultivating a community called Intentional Family. And this is a group that I want to invite folks to where we begin to, to depict and describe what it looks like when we have intentional, loving, healthy family uh, connections. Because what I have come to find is that, um, you know, those are the relationships that we need. But for a lot of our empaths, unfortunately, on this journey, we have lost relationship to family yes. or they're very fragmented or we there are few and far between folks from our first tribe that yeah. we can still rely on, that we still feel connected to. And what that has led us to is to create an intentional family, a, um, you know, 
I have experienced more kindness with strangers. And I have found that kinship with folks from similar backgrounds has sometimes stepped up and stepped in to be more healing and more supportive than the first tribe. And that's just a sign, Darlene, that we deserve that. We do. That even if we didn't experience it in the first part of our lives, we, it's not because we didn't deserve it. And that, that nothing, we weren't led here to live a life of pain and wounding. And instead, we're meant to be surrounded and supported by love. And that, you know, we, it's funny, and this is a step beyond the energy work. And it's a step beyond even when we speak about the law of attraction. There is an even power, more powerful love in the universe. Yes. Uh, um, power in the universe than the law of attraction. An even more powerful law beyond attraction. It is love wow and uh i recently asked on my personal wall you know regarding that quote that that einstein said you know the most important decision we can make in our lifetime is whether we live in a universe um that it uh, supports us or whether we live in a hostile universe Mm -hmm. that's a decision that we get to make and my experience has taught me that the entire universe is designed based in love to support us. But it is up to us to own that and to claim it. And the moment that I claimed that love is behind and at the root of my life, that is when everything changed for me. Amazing. And um, the path became it just unfolded on its own it became clear um on its own so that's the process i want to invite you and i want to invite everyone to um beginning with creating safety in our very own personal space love it so amazing thank you so much for sharing with us adriana and I would definitely be hopping into your group and saying hello. So absolutely. It's been an honor to have this conversation. Thank you. Absolutely. You're very welcome. And thank you everyone for joining us. I will see you next time on all that is empath.